I'm, I'm so excited about this. Uh, normally we have, like we just finished Revelation. Normally we'd have like a couple weeks and then we, of like standalone sermons and then we'd kind of move into something. But Easter's coming up and so I'm like, oh, I kind of would love to do Jonah before we get to Easter. And, and then we're going to do, after Easter, we're going to do the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed really is basically just talks through what it is that we believe as Christians. And so because of looking at time frame in the calendar, I was going, all right, well, if we're going to do Jonah, we're going to jump in now. We're going to spend five weeks. It's a four-chapter book. So chapter one will be two sermons, uh, but the rest of them will be one chapter, a sermon. Now, most people think that Jonah is simply about a guy who got swallowed in a fish, didn't want to go to Nineveh. Then eventually he's like, all right, fine, I'll go to Nineveh, and everything goes well. Um, that's not really the story at all. I mean, it does involve a fish and a guy getting swallowed, but that's not really the main point. Um, Jonah's like an onion. There's layers, lots and lots of layers in this book. The book of Jonah is about how God uses his great power to expose the rebellion within Jonah. The story is about how God uses Jonah's rebellion to bring pagan sailors to know Christ. Uh, the book is about seeing and understanding the heart God has for the nations to come and know him. Uh, in fact, that one right there is, is one of the reasons we want to look at this book. We're in the process of, of looking at how we do missions here at the church, of how we go to unreached people groups. In fact, many of you know, Ben and I will be going to India and Thailand in just uh, six weeks or so to look at how we can more effectively uh, partner with other organizations reaching unreached people groups. We have people this year going to Lebanon, people going to Poland, all for the purpose of sharing the gospel. We're also looking at how do we be more effective in partnering with agencies here in Thurston County? How do we share the gospel here? And so, so Jonah's about helping us wrestle with, with where we're at in mission. Uh, so there's a lot to the story of Jonah. Um, I'm excited as we go through it. I hope you'll be excited. One book is gone. There, there's one book left up here. Uh, come grab that after the, uh, after the sermon. Um, you can come grab it now, too, if you really want. Um, and then and read it, and I encourage you, pass it off to someone. It's a good book. Tim Keller's book, Prodigal Prophet. Good, good book. Uh, what we do now is we stand when we read the word, so I want to invite you to stand. We're just going to read verses 1 through 6. We stand here because we believe God's word comes with his full authority and inspiration. It's for the equipping and the building up of the saints. And so we do so to, to recognize our God, his authority, and to honor the very book that he's given us. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to, the son, to Jonah, the son of Emetai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came out and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps 
that God will give us a thought, give a thought to us that we may not perish. Let me pray. Father, Father, be with us now as, as we come into this book called Jonah. God, I pray that you use this book as an incredible way to encourage us, to expose sin that might be within us, to draw us close to you, to show us how you use storms in our lives as a means of, of, of giving us grace and mercy. God, help us to see the heart that you have for the nations and that you desire your gospel to go forth, that people would hear about you and believe in your son, Jesus. Lord, grow us in our knowledge of you today in this book. God, may this book be a source of comfort, encouragement uh, to us. Lord, thank you in your name, Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. Um, so we're going to make our way through, uh, kind of have the outline there for you. First point, God calls Jonah to proclaim a message of repentance to a rebellious nation. And so what I want to do is just begin with some historical context, which is why we kind of broke up chapter one into two sermons. I just want us to understand what is happening in the book of Jonah, where, where, where it's taking place, what's the time frame. So when Jonah was written, we don't exactly know, but we know the context in what it was written. It was written in the 8th century. Now we know this because Jonah, the son of Emete, is mentioned also in 2 Kings chapter 14, which takes place in the 8th century. And so I put that passage, I think, up here on the screen. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah... So that's the southern kingdom. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And so at this time in history, we have God's people are divided into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, Judah, the northern kingdom, Israel. And this took place after Solomon's reign. Jonah is a prophet to the northern kingdom, Israel. Israel had 18 bad kings, every king wicked. None of them followed God. The northern kingdom continually rejected God. Hosea and Amos are contemporaries of Jonah. So they're also writing in the 8th century. They're writing to Israel. And when you go and read the book of Hosea and the book of Amos, what you see is that Israel was worshiping false gods. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. And widows and orphans were being neglected and abused. So, so what we have here in Jonah Jonah prophesies that we're going to have great um, advancement of land and economic growth. God blesses Israel despite their rebellion, and they still reject him, 
Amos comes on board later in chapter 6 and says, because you've rejected God, even though he's expanded your borders, now he's going to bring judgment on you. And so uh, this is the context in which we're in. Israel is experiencing great economic growth. And in verse 2, Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. Now the word arise means get up, go immediately. So God's not saying, think about it. Take your time. He's not asking what he thinks. He's saying, no, go to Nineveh. So who is Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was one of the capitals of the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrians were a violent people who sought to spread the worship of their pagan deity, Asher, through violence, war, and power. So that's what they did. They believed that the way they honored their king, their god, was to violently attack and kill and demonstrate the power of their god over other peoples. So uh, they were a terrorist nation known for torturing their enemies. And so I just want to give a little taste of, of how they tortured them. So it's good. Most of the little kids have gone. They would typically cut off the legs of their enemies. They would then cut off one of the arms of their enemies, leaving one arm attached so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They would force family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues, stretched their bodies so they could be flayed alive, and their skins displayed on the city walls. This this is the nation that now God says, Go, Jonah. I want you to go. I want you to give them a message. And what we know in 722 B.C., that Assyria will be used by God as an, as an instrument of judgment on Israel because Israel continues to rebel against God. So Assyria will come, capture them, overcome them, and take them into captivity. And that's the end of the northern kingdom. So asking Jonah to preach in the streets, would be, um, in the streets of Nineveh would be like asking a Jew to go into Germany preaching uh, during World War II. It's a death sentence. This is not a place you'd want to go. Or to change metaphors, Jonah is being asked, he's not being asked to rebuke the school bully from his own yard with his big brothers behind him, like from Israel. He's being told, you're going to go to the bully's house where the bully has all his brothers, and you're going to go and rebuke him there. So that's what's happening here. So what does Jonah do? He runs, and that brings us to our next point. Jonah's rejection of God, of God's command, reveals his rebellious heart. In verse 3, we read that Jonah rises up and he flees to Tarshish. Now this is, this is pretty incredible. The, the phrase, the word of the Lord came to, and, and then uh, the prophet, just fill in the prophet's name, that occurs some like 85 times, 100 times in the Old Testament. And do you know what happens like every single time the word of the Lord came to a prophet? Do you know what the prophet does? He does what the word of the Lord is supposed to do. He he obeys God. But Jonah does the exact opposite. He goes in the opposite direction. He flees. This is is unprecedented. In fact, I have a picture up here. Um, so, So... Joppa, just right next to the star, is Samaria, which you can't see, but you can just trust me. 
So uh, next to the star of Joppa is Samaria. And so Nineveh was to the northeast. All the enemies of God were, were portrayed in the Bible as always coming from the east. Nineveh is actually to the east. And Tarshish is on the southwestern part of Spain. The most western part of the known world at this time. So as you can see, Jonah's going, okay, that's where you want me to go. I am going to go as far away from where you want me to go as absolutely possible. So what we need to understand something here is that um, Jonah is not like other prophets. Now other prophets like Hosea and Ezekiel, sometimes the prophet is the message. It's not just the words that they give, but their very life is the message. Now that is the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is not so much about what he says, it's about who he is and what God's doing in him. But typically, in every other situation, the prophets of God are seen in contrast to the people that they're going to, seen in contrast to their audience. They're calling Israel, or whatever the people, to repentance, and the prophet is, is living a holy life. They're pursuing God, and they're calling the people of God to pursue God, to repent. But Jonah isn't pursuing God. He's rebellious against God, and so is Israel. Jonah is Israel. He's a picture of the heart of Israel. So, so what we need to see here is Jonah's not to see, be seen in contrast to the people, but he is seen as their representative. His rebelliousness is their rebelliousness. And so why does Jonah flee to Tarshish? Well, if we look, it says in verse 3, Jonah fled, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. And then if you look again in verse 3, uh, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And in verse 10, it says, when he's talking to the sailors, it says he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So, so what's Jonah doing? He's fleeing the presence of God. The text clearly wants us to see he's trying to get away from God. Now, did Jonah actually think he could get away from God? Did he actually think that? I mean, later, when Jonah's talking to the sailors, he says, I serve the God who created the sea and all the land. So, does he actually think he's escaping God? I, I don't think so. I mean, Jonah knows, uh, he would know the Psalms. He would know Psalm 139. Uh, this is a famous Psalm that, that many of us know. And, and Psalm 139 shows that there's nowhere we can go from God. I have it up here. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The whole point of the psalm is there's nowhere we can go that we escape God. In fact, in chapter 2, we're going to see that God is with Jonah in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea. So what does it mean that Jonah is trying to get away from God's presence? Well, I think, the, I think what we need to understand is in the Old Testament, God primarily made his rule and his blessing known in the promised land, in Israel. And so Jonah is escaping the promised land. He's escaping the place where God makes his rule, makes his, uh, his blessings known to his people. One commentator said this, 
Jonah imagined that if he went out of the land of Israel, the spirit of prophecy would no longer rest on him. I think that's probably pretty close to what's happening. He's trying to run from the responsibility of following and obeying God. He thinks, if I'm not in the land, I'm no longer a prophet. I don't have to do it. So Jonah, I think, is abdicating his role here. He's calling it quits. He's saying, if you want me to go to Nineveh, to talk to that terrorist nation, I'm done. That's not going to happen. So why is it then that Jonah rebels? So that's like the question we all want to get to, but the text doesn't actually give it to us until chapter four. So at this point in the story, we're not supposed to know why he rebels. And and we're going to find that in chapter 4, although we'll dig into that a little bit right now. But it's good to notice the way the story unfolds. So the way the story unfolds is it's supposed to kind of leave us right now going, I don't know why he's running. This is pretty interesting. Then chapter 4, it will reveal it later. But let me give you two reasons why he's not running. Two reasons that are wrong, I think. I don't know if I said that right. Let me give you two wrong reasons, and I'll give you one right reason. Number one, it's not because the mission is hard. It's not because he's asking him to go into the bully's yard. That's not what's given. Nowhere in the text are we given anything to think that, although it may have been a factor. It just was not the primary factor. It's not because Jonah nor Israel understood mission. Some people, and I was reading commentary, said, well, Does Israel even understand mission at this point? Well, yes, they clearly understood mission. They knew that they were to be a light to the nations. In Genesis, when God calls uh, Abram, he says, you will be a blessing to all nations. Now, primarily in the Old Testament, mission worked like this. It was come and see. Meaning God poured out his blessings on Israel that they were physically blessed Uh, with long life, with money, with other things like that. And it was a way for the world to see, wow, the God of Israel blesses his people and protects them unlike any other pagan God. But when we come into the New Testament, mission changes and it's a go and tell. So rather than people coming to uh, like a centralized area like Israel, Now, as God's people, the church, we go out and we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the way mission works in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's primarily come and see. In the New Testament, it's go and tell. Um, And we know that they understood mission because we have texts like in the Psalms. Psalm 18, 49 says this, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Psalm 96, verse 3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Psalm 67, verse 3, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So throughout the Psalms, there are texts that are written that, God, you should be glorified now. Your name needs to be known now. Not just in Israel, but to the nations. So yes, Israel does understand mission. They they just don't do it. But they do understand it. So if it's not because it's hard, and it's not because they don't understand mission, why is it that Jonah does not want to go? Um, Jonah's problem is theological, which technically all of our problems are theological. All of our problems are theological. Um, 
But if you, if you jump over to chapter 4, what we see in chapter 4, verse 1, we read that Jonah is exceedingly angry. Now, that word exceedingly angry is, is going to be key as we flow through uh, chapter 4 in a couple weeks. But we see he is just seething mad. And in chapter or 4, verse 2, we see why and who he's mad at. Chapter 4, verse 2, we see he's angry at God. And the reason is, he says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So what's happened is Jonah actually went to Nineveh, and he, and he preached the gospel, which we'll get to there. It's all of five words. Um, and the crazy thing is it worked. And the whole nation repents. And Jonah's ticked off. Why? God, you're so merciful. I hate that you're gracious. These people you should not be merciful to. So just those people that ever, if you've ever heard them say, you know, the God of the Old Testament really angry. Actually, Jonah is so ticked off because he knows how gracious God is. So that's kind of a different way to look at it. So it's a good way when you're talking to those people and they say, the God of the Old Testament is really angry. Actually, there's a prophet who's really mad because God's so gracious and merciful. Jonah's mad because he knew that if he actually went to Nineveh and they repented, God would forgive him. And Jonah doesn't think they're worthy of salvation. Jonah rebels because he doesn't think God's acting rightly. Israel should be blessed, not them. He doesn't agree that God should be merciful to Nineveh, and if God wants to give them forgiveness, then God is wrong. What we learn here is that to rebel against God's word, to, to flee when God says go to Nineveh, is actually to rebel against God. Jonah has judged God, and he's found him guilty. Now, ironically, Jonah has missed the whole fact that Israel itself is incredibly rebellious, and yet God has been merciful to Israel. That's what sin does. It always blinds us to our sins, and it always makes us seem like we're better than others, when in reality, what we read in Romans 3, we're all sinful underneath God's wrath. So Tim Keller, in his book, the one that we have one left of, uh, he says we can rebel against God in one of two ways. Outright rejection. We deny God, we refuse to obey him. This is like what Jonah is doing right now. This is also like the younger brother in the prodigal son. Remember that? The younger brother runs away from God, runs away from the father, and he wants to live his own life and do his own thing. He's not going to be obedient. This is Jonah. He's just running right now. And that's, that's one way that we rebel. It's just outright denial, running from God, running from his people, running from his commands. But there's another way we rebel, too. It's when we cling to our, what we might call just our religion or our religiosity. We obey every single rule and command of God. We don't obey out of joy, but we do so out of duty and obligation. Um, our righteous actions become like rungs on a ladder. The more I do, the higher I go. The higher I go, the more I look down on others. This is the story of the elder brother in the, in the, in the prodigal son. The elder brother is the one who's mad and ticked off when the brother, the younger one, 
comes back. The father throws a party. He puts the fattened, he sacrifices the fattened calf, puts the coat on him, gives him a ring. And the older brother's going, excuse me, I didn't go anywhere. I stayed here and worked every single day. I've always been obedient. I've never been like him. I've done everything you've asked. Where's my party? If anyone deserves a party, it's not him who rejected everything and spent your money and wasted it. It's me. And so what happens is actually as we get to chapter 4, we see Jonah is the elder brother. Well, I'm, I'm part of the people of God. I got the commands of God. I have the covenants of God. We follow God. I mean, sure, we sacrifice to other idols and do a lot of bad things, but we also do the very things God wants us to do. We still honor the Sabbath. We still do these things, not out of a heart of worship, but out of duty and obligation. Shouldn't we be revered? How is it this pagan nation? They don't deserve anything. We, we, only Israel deserves the blessings of God. You see, Jonah, like the elder brother, is a self-righteous racist. That's who Jonah is. That's who Israel is at this moment. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because they're not worthy. Now think about this. Don't people, don't Christians say things like this today? I've heard it. I've heard Christians say, certain people groups today do not deserve grace, do not deserve the gospel because of certain acts of violence that they or their people that they represent have committed. Have you heard that? I think it doesn't take hard. There's not much difficulty thinking, okay, you got a terrorist nation who's violently spreading the, the message of their God by conquering in and killing mercilessly, mercilessly other people. And then see that there's many nations like that today in people groups who seek to spread their kingdom, spread the worship of their God through violence. And there are many people as Christians even, who then say, you know, they, they should not ever have a chance for receiving the gospel. So we'll get back to that in chapter 4. Because we're actually not supposed to know any of that right now in chapter 1. But that, that's where he's at. So I just want us to know, this is the heart of Jonah. This is where he's at. This is where he's wrestled. So he's running from God. So let's switch gears, though. Now remember, Jonah is the message. Jonah is the message. So we're meant to now at this point go, am I like Jonah? Am I running from God? Am I rejecting any of God's commands? Am I obeying simply out of duty, out of obligation rather than joy? Here's a couple things just to think through. Um, just to think through, is there some level of rebellion going on? And, and just to be honest, there is some level of rebellion going in our hearts right now. Okay, th there is. None of us are perfect. We still wrestle with sin. So, so I'm going to mention some things, whether they're actually true in your heart or not. You do have rebellion in your heart because we still struggle with sin. But here's a few things just that might highlight certain areas in your heart. Um, the failure to gather with the church or only doing so sporadically would show that there's, there's a level of rebellion going on in, in you. God calls his people to gather together. Um, perhaps perhaps you, you struggle with an attitude of superiority. Do you look at serving 
as something beneath you? And you might, of course, say, well, no, of course not. Do you think of it as an obligation, like, oh, I have to do that? Do you look at it as an inconvenience? I just don't have time. In fact, never do I have time. Do you feel like you're always no more than others? Never, right? Do you feel like you're further along in your spiritual maturity than most other people? Do you find that you would rather just study the Bible by yourself than be in community with others? It's just a knowing being with others. If only they were more like me, they would already know all these things. <sighs> it's such a duty to go hang out with these people. Seriously, you ever struggle with that? Man, I could just kind of do my own thing in my own place. It's a lot easier, a lot more efficient. When good things happen to others, do you find yourself thinking, really? Them? I mean, honestly, it should have been me. I deserve it. You ever, you ever think that? What about this? Do you find that you treat people with the you made your bed, now lie in it motto? Really? You want help? Well, you, you kind of put yourself here. Maybe you should suffer. Do you struggle with showing people grace and mercy? Are there people in your life that you know right now you're just not gracious to? Just No, I mean, just doesn't even take a nanosecond. And their mind and their face is in your head, and you're like, nope, nope. But they don't deserve it either. I mean, just think, you struggle with that? Lack of prayer, lack of repentance? If you're not spending time in prayer, if the last time you repented was, I can't remember, there's definitely rebellion going on. The neglect of the word, you can't obey the scriptures if you don't know the scriptures. Or perhaps you do know the scriptures, and perhaps you know them quite well. Does your knowledge puff you up, or does it move you towards humility? Let's, let's even be more specific. Are we obeying scripture? Let's pick out a command. Are we making disciples? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, our King, says, Go. Go make disciples. Now, making disciples is, is two parts. Number one, it's sharing, verbally, sharing the gospel with unbelievers. So, have, have we done that? Lately, within the last week, just wrestle with that. Are we doing it? Now, also, making disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you, so it's not just going to unreached people, it's not just going to unbelievers, but it's with believers, and it's the training up in the Word. It's coming alongside. It's wrestling with each other. Now, I find that one is a lot easier to do. We do that in, in well, no longer table groups. We do it mainly in Bible studies. I mean, we do it in table groups, but mainly in like Bible studies are really wrestling with God's word. But even in table groups, we're encouraging each other. We're, we're praying for one another. We're called to go make disciples. So I ask you, are, are you sharing the gospel? Are you involved in training others? Now, I don't bring these up like as a, as a shaming or a guilting or, or to say, man, I do these perfectly. Like I struggle in these very things also. But Jonah causes us to look inward. 
He causes us to look in at our hearts and saying, am I obeying the king or am I rebelling against the king? And so I think as, as we're reading through this book, we just need to simply say, okay, is there anything that I'm doing that is against what God has called us to do? Or are there certain areas in my life that I know are not in alignment right now with God? Hear this, the sin of rebellion begins with small steps. Don't ignore it. Small steps. And the sin will take you further than you ever thought and cause more pain and destruction than you ever bargained for. I have a quote that um, in your bulletin says by Tim Keller, sin always hardens the conscience, locks you into the prison of your own defensiveness and rationalizations and eats you up slowly from the inside. So, so listen, I know that there's rebellion in you. I know there's rebellion in me. And the dangerous thing is, is that we can say, yeah, okay. That's not like a big deal, right? The biggest thing, or the worst thing we can do is just begin to ignore it. But God calls us to repent, to repent of it, to ask for forgiveness and seek to follow him, not out of duty, but out of joy, out of the joy of following him, uh, by his grace and mercy. Okay. So, so how does Jonah, or how does God respond when Jonah runs? This I think is very interesting. And this is, this is a message that I think we all need to know for ourselves and for the purpose of helping other people. What we see is that God mercifully pursues Jonah by wrecking his rebellious plans. You get it? He mercifully pursues Jonah by wrecking his rebellious plans. Verse 4, we see God hurls a storm at Jonah. Now, the word hurl is the same word used when throwing a spear. So this is, this is, a, this is a strong, powerful act. This is no little storm either that God has hurled. It's causing experienced sailors to panic, to throw their cargo overboard, to cry out to every pagan deity. At the end of verse 4, we read, the ship is beginning to break. It's cracking up under the pressure. Look, God has no problems wielding creation in order to wreck Jonah's plan of rebellion and expose <clears throat> his hard heart. Like, God has no problem. He'll sink them and drown them all to rebel their hearts. Like, that's what we have here. So don't fall into the lie, and, and, and I hear it. You know, God will just sit back, let his people rebel. He's not going to interfere. I mean, free will, right? You'll just let us go, do our own thing. That's not what Jonah shows us. The message of Jonah is as Jonah rebels, God pursues. In fact, all throughout Jonah, what we're going to see is that how God wields his sovereign power to expose Jonah's heart. He's going to use a storm, a well, a worm, a boat, a, a plant, the sun, even the captain of the boat he uses. Look at verse 6. The captain says to Jonah, Arise, call out to your God. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit similar to verse 2? Go back to verse 2, where God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out. So God says, Arise, and call. And now the captain is saying, Arise, call. Surely the author is wanting us to see Jonah is not being allowed to forget the fact that he is rebelling against God. God is putting it front and center, right in front of them, saying, look, you are rebelling against me. Now, you might think, this just doesn't sound super loving, though. <laughs> I mean, God's going to threaten to send Jonah 
all the sailors to the bottom of the sea simply because he doesn't want to share the gospel? Like, is this really loving? Let me read a passage from the book of Hebrews. I think it's pretty helpful here. Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So do you see it? The storm is an act of mercy. God's disciplining Jonah because he loves him. God is lovingly exposing the hardness of Jonah's heart so he would repent. You see, when we come to the gospel, we see, yes, Jesus comes and he dies on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of sins. He dies as our substitute. That if we believe in him, we'd be forgiven, we'd be adopted into his family. But what, what then we understand is that God doesn't save us and then leave us. He's not saying, great, check the box, you're good to go, nothing else needs to happen. He saves us and then dwells with us so he would transform us. It's never about leaving us where we are when we first got saved, but it's about conforming us more and more into the image of his son. Philippians 1.6 says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God promises that upon saving you, he's going to complete the work he began in you. I mean, he's going to make you more and more like his son until the day he brings you either through death or his son returns and brings you into glory with him. And how does he do that? He does it primarily through the word. This is the number one means in which God will use to draw us close to him, transform us, to expose sin in our hearts. He will use the church. He will use believers as a means of, of growing us in our faith, which is why we believe table groups and Bible studies are so incredibly essential. We see he can use unbelievers like the sailor. He can use them as instruments of grace. But what we also see is that God uses storms. One commentator said, as Christians, we're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or going into a storm. I, I think that's true. Now, next week, we will see that not all the storms we go through are actually a direct result of your sin. Some of them are, but sometimes we're like the sailors, right? The sailors are actually caught up in Jonah's storm, and the crazy thing is, and what we're going to see is that God, in his sovereignty, uses the storm in Jonah's life as a means of bringing them to salvation. Which is really crazy because Jonah's trying to run from giving the gospel to unbelievers, but God uses him in his rebellion to bring unbelievers to him. That's next week, though. This is a lot of fun. Like Jonah's like an onion, just layer after layer, and you're just like, this is incredible what God is doing. But what we need to see is that storms are an act of mercy that God uses to expose sin in our hearts. God would rather, hear this, God would rather have you, have me, experience temporal pain now so that we would repent and experience his eternal joy with him forever rather than experience his eternal wrath and judgment because we refuse to repent. 
See, look, God is not about your best life now. God is about your best life for eternity. And if that means bringing a storm into your life to awaken you or using it to awaken others, He will do that as an act of mercy and grace. So I ask you, are, are you in a storm? What did you think? Are you in a storm? Have you been running from God? Do you feel like your world or parts of your world is falling apart? Is God revealing ways that you've been disobedient to His Word? I, I, I do think it's right. We're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or going in a storm. So I know this is true for everyone here. So you just have to say, where are you there? Now you can either think the storm in your life is random, and you've just kind of drawn that short straw at this moment in life. You can believe that there's a vengeful God who just loves to punish people. Yet the ironic part is, is at the end of the book, we are going to be faced with God is not vengeful. He's incredibly loving and gracious and merciful and will go to great strides to bring people to him. Or we can believe here what we have in the Bible, in the God of the Bible, that he is a good and kind and merciful God. And he's using a storm right now for your good and for the good of others. Now you might be thinking, how? How is this storm, whatever it is, how is God using this storm for good? And and honestly, I, I don't know that I could say I have any clue how he will do that. But we do have hope. When we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, we have the greatest atrocity that's ever been committed. We have Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who comes to this earth, who has done nothing wrong. He's arrested. He's beaten. He's spat upon. He's got the crown of thorns pressed into his head. Blood is coming from his body. He's been whipped with that that cat of nine tails, which has metal, shards of glass, and other instruments that would just rip flesh away. He's nailed to the cross where he's bleeding out, being mocked. I mean, his creation is mocking him at this moment. And so we have the greatest atrocity ever, and, and when he dies, clearly nobody thinks that this is anything good. The disciples run, they hide, they're afraid they'll be next. With every thought, this is unredeemable. This storm that has just happened, nothing good comes from it. Our hopes were in this Jesus He's dead. We're screwed. That's that's where it is. And yet, three days later, Jesus rises, showing he has conquered sin, death, and Satan. And that we have hope. And what we learn is that God can use storms in a far greater way than we ever could imagine. In fact, if there was no suffering, there would be no gospel. You hear that? The only reason you and I can be saved is because of the suffering of Jesus. And now the crazy thing is, God will use our suffering as a means of drawing us close to him and as a means of drawing others, propelling the gospel into all the world. 
Some of you are in the perspectives class. It's a, it's a missions class going on right now. And recently you've been uh, immersed in biographies and, and looking at what God has done in missions. And you've seen over and over and over and over again that the primary way the gospel goes forth is by the blood of martyrs. So, I mean, what we have all throughout church history is that the gospel goes... Christians have died, and rather than that being any type of impediment, it seems to propel the gospel even further. God, in his sovereignty, uses storms like we can never imagine. And so, I don't know how what the storm is in your life and how God can use it for good. I mean, we can guess, we can wrestle with it, we can maybe look at other pictures and, and how God has used things. But ultimately, what we come to is, is we know he can and the way we respond to these storms is repentance. Is we repent. And we simply draw near to God and we say, God, forgive me. God, draw me close to you. God, make me more like you. We trust in Jesus, his son. We trust in him as king. So perhaps you're here today and you've been running. Maybe you're tired from running. Maybe you're exhausted. I think what we see here in Jonah, Jonah's asleep in the bottom of the boat. I think he's worn out. It is tiring running from God. And you might be here and you're just worn out and you're just tired. And you have no idea how you can go any farther. God's calling you right now, just drawing you close. Say, this storm simply meant to awaken your heart that you would repent and believe. And perhaps you're here and, and, and you have small areas of rebellion that are building. Maybe as we're going through that list, maybe it's one of those or maybe it triggered something else. The worst thing you can do is just ignore that. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm tough. No, no you're not. The sin wants you to think so. And it will take you further and further and further from God until you also could be like Jonah. Fine, I'm done. I quit. What God desires right now is for repentance. And here's the good news is, like what we read in 1 John 1, 9, when we confess, he is faithful to forgive. We're not confessing going, God, will you? God, I hope you'll forgive. But he's the faithful father who loves to forgive. Just as in the, the, the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, as the, the rebellious son runs to him, the father has open arms. God loves to receive us. So what I want to do is just close in prayer. And, and as I close, I really just ask that you would wrestle with, with where you're at. And also... Um, I'd start with where you're at. Start with you, and then go to number the second one. But, but don't start here, and don't go quickly to the second one. But start with where you're at, and just say, God, uh, really, at the end of Psalm 139 says, see if there be any wicked way in me. Just, God, is there anything wicked? Do I need to repent? I, I don't think God wants us to go on witch hunts. If there's something, he's going to rebel. If there's not something, great. Praise God. <laughs> like, like, let's not go on a witch hunt. He's not hiding it. Well, you didn't really ask sincerely enough. Um, but then, secondly, realize God uses storms in other people. So, so wrestle with, is there a storm going in someone else's life that you know? And pray, how can you come alongside them? How can you pray with them? How can you help them? God wants to use the storms to draw us close to us. Sin wants to use storms to push us away from him. 
So I just ask you to wrestle with this. If there's anyone you know going through a storm right now, how would God use you to go and minister to them, to just love them? Let me pray.